I'm going to uh, ask if you have your copy of God's Word to turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we are of course going to be continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, specifically verse 19, and I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of the Word of God, and I'll begin the reading in verse 17. These are the words of our Savior, and they're eternal. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, we ask for your mercy. Father, we ask for your grace. Oh, dear Lord, we pray that we would be humbled in thy presence. Father God, we ask that we would see you for as great, as glorious as you are. God, we ask that we would see ourselves rightly and appropriately in relation to that. God, we, we pray that we would see your word for what it truly is. Father, that your word is your specially chosen revelation for your people. Therefore, every line, every word, every phrase, every verb, every noun is, is, is relevant for us and is powerful for us and cannot be ignored. But, oh dear God, because your word is so powerful, we need the aid of your Holy Spirit to understand it rightly and appropriately. So we ask for your grace as well as the illuminating power of your Spirit tonight. For unless the Spirit is with us to interpret spiritual truths, all that we do is in vain. Father, we are debtors to your grace and we are debtors to your mercy. In the name of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Tonight we are going to be addressing a topic that is eternally relevant, and yet it is at the same time increasingly necessary that we address it. And the reason that I say that is because we are currently living in a day and an age where these things can no longer be assumed. For many generations of the history of the church and in the early parts of this country, America, there was what we would call a Christian consensus. A Christian consensus. Now, what do I mean by a Christian consensus? I, I, I simply mean that Christian truth, Christian morality was generally assumed. If you were working in a, in a steel mill or you were working in, in a white-collar job or wherever you were, you could simply assume that your coworkers would accept God's Word as relevant. Now, 
he may not even be a Christian, but even you know, non-Christians would hear, if you quoted the Bible, it would still have a level of authority to them. Unfortunately, we are living in what is called the postmodern era, the postmodern era. Truth is no longer seen as objective. Truth is seen as subjective, as in the sense of subject to change, subject to the one interpreting the truth. It is the common belief on any college campus, and I have bore witness to this with my own eyes. I, I visited my sister recently at her school. It is the common belief amongst our young people that what's true for me may not necessarily be true for you, and vice versa. This kind of thing flies in the face of Christian truth. We believe that God determines what is true, that God determines what is right and what is wrong. We believe that. And so how do we then know what God says is right? How do we then know what God says is true? The answer for the Christian is his word. Is his word, but sadly, a lot of Christians are not really equipped to handle God's word appropriately. And what I mean by that is most Christians do not have a clue what to do with the Old Testament, and specifically the Old Testament law. Leviticus is probably the one book that has stopped more people than any other from actually reading through the entire Bible. And even for Christians who do read Leviticus, who do read Deuteronomy, don't really know what to do with it. You know, we love the Gospels, we love the epistles of Paul, we love the Psalms, and we can quote those and we can talk about those, but when we get into some of the passages in the Old Testament law, we don't really know what to do with them. And yet, if you listen to the last sermon two weeks ago, you know that Jesus said that not one jot or tittle of the law was going to pass away until all is accomplished. So we have a real problem there, don't we? Because we have the authority as Christians. The authority is God's Word. We just don't know what to do with God's Word. And so my intention tonight is to give us at least a foundation for looking into God's law and understanding how to interpret it how to, and how to apply it to our modern day. And because this is a, such a a deep and really is a vast subject and there are complexities to it and not all Christians even agree on how to apply the Old Testament law to today. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to be able, nor is it my intention, to answer every conceivable question or get to every single detail about this. My intention is to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I, Jesus here places such a high importance on the law of God And because of that, I am going to attempt to help us as a church to understand that. In our last study, we discussed how Christ fulfilled the law in his person and in his work for men. In that study, we specifically looked at Christ's priestly work on the cross as the fulfillment of its Old Testament types. 
We also observe the fact that the entire Old Testament is the unfolding account of the mystery of the Messiah until he would be revealed some 2,000 years ago to fulfill those promises, to make atonement for sins once for all, and to establish his kingdom. Jesus actually goes so far as to emphasize the fact that, quote, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, contrary to what so many people think, the New Testament does not replace the old. It does not do away with the old. And as we will see in today's study, the Old Testament and the Old Testament law is still very much relevant for Christians today. The law has applications for our personal conduct. The law has applications for our personal spiritual lives. And the law has application towards our society at large. Now, in order to understand these things rightly, we ask for God's grace. We ask for the blessing of His Spirit. So in verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, of course, begins with a therefore, and as I have instructed you all, whenever you encounter the word therefore, you ask the question, well, what's it there for? The therefore is, of course, in reference to the fact of what we read in verses 17 and 18. Christ has not come to abolish the law, as well as the positive truth that he is the fulfillment thereof. We discussed these things in greater detail in our last session. I'm not going to repeat it all here, but for the purposes of tonight's study, we recognize that all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Therefore, all of the Bible is relevant for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, what would be the purpose of Jesus saying this here in this place? Isn't that something that's just obvious? Isn't that something that's just a given? Well, what we are going to find as we get, move into chapter 5 is that Jesus is going to be dealing with some of the pharisaical mishandlings and misinterpretations of the Old Testament law. Now, unfortunately, many people interpret those passages in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus actually criticizing the Old Testament. But it's almost as though Jesus anticipates that that is what people might think he's doing. And so what he's doing is he lays down the fact, he says it before he even gets started, he lays down the fact that he has not come to do away with or to abolish the law of Moses. He has not come to abolish the writings. He has not come to do away with the Psalms nor any of the prophets. This seems so very obvious, but it cannot be repeated enough. When Paul wrote to Timothy saying that all Scripture was theonustos, that all Scripture was God-breathed, the Scripture that Timothy had been taught from at a very young age, the scripture that Timothy would be most familiar with was, in fact, the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes up the majority of the books in your Bible, and the New Testament makes up less than a third. Now, that in no way, of course, diminishes or lessens the value of the new. It's not what I'm saying, but what it does mean is that we absolutely cannot unhitch from the Old Testament. We cannot ignore the Old Testament. And so Jesus, he is, he's transitioning 
into the portion of the Sermon on the Mount where he's refuting the ways that the Pharisees had mishandled the law. And so he says this before he gets started as a safeguard, before we get in, that we understand it is not those scriptures themselves that he is refuting. So he says in verse 19, therefore, that is, because I am the fulfillment of the law, because of the fact that not one dot, not one iota is going to pass away until all is accomplished, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now the word translated as relax is the Greek say, and it literally means to loose, like to untie something. Here it has almost a legal sense of untying or unfixing someone from an obligation so that you would no longer be bound to it. And so what Jesus is warning against then is that those who would seek to unbind, unyoke, untie themselves from the law of God, but not only that, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. You see, it is worthy of note that Christ not only calls out people who would seek to unhitch themselves from the law, but he specifically calls out false teachers who would admonish others to do the same, who would lead others astray, wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, God takes teachers, preachers, very seriously in his kingdom, which is why he holds us to a stricter judgment and a higher account, by the way. The Apostle John refers to false teachers as antichrists. God very specially abhors false teaching and false doctrine because it inevitably leads people to a false god and that sin he hates most of idolatry. Now let us notice that Christ specifically refers to, quote, the least of these commandments. If you were to continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, you would find Jesus rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And so there is a sense in which there is a degree of significance to the different commandments of the law. And in that passage I'm referring to, Christ identifies justice, mercy, and faithfulness as weightier matters of the law, which the Pharisees had neglected, even though they kept to the ceremonial practice regarding tithes. Now, Christ does not say that, you know, the tithes, tithes were not important. He says, these you ought to have done, it's just that without neglecting the others. You see, it's very easy to put on the external front to look good on the outside. It's, uh, it's way easier, and not that I'm really that good at it, but it's way easier for me to dress nice and to present myself nice than to actually live holy. It, it is way easier to tie a tie than to honor God in my heart. And so when Christ uses the phrase here in verse 19, the least of these commandments, what he's doing is he's like using this hyperbolic language to demonstrate just how serious he is. There, there is no commandment whether you are going to point to thou shalt not murder or if you're going to point to the dietary restrictions or you're going to point to the tithing or, or any of it. There is no commandment in God's divine law that Christ says is unimportant that Christ says is irrelevant. 
No matter how important or unimportant we may think it is, it doesn't matter because it's already said in verse 18, not the slightest, not the smallest stroke of a stylus or stroke of a pen is going to pass away until all is accomplished. You will sometimes people, uh, hear people who call themselves progressive Christians, which progressive Christianity just means that you've progressed beyond the Bible and regressed back into paganism. Say in regards to the Bible about certain moral subjects, specifically gender and sexuality, you know, it doesn't really matter what God's law or God's word says about those things because Jesus tells us that we're supposed to love our neighbors. Well, Jesus does tell us we're supposed to love our neighbors. But the problem is, when Jesus told us to love your neighbor as you love yourself, he was quoting from God's law. He was quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, the same section of the book of Leviticus that calls homosexuality an abomination. But what many people don't recognize is that Jesus says this is the second greatest commandment. What's the first? The first and greatest commandment Christ said was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. By the way, we would call this the first and second table of the law. If you look at the, the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with loving God. Five through ten have to do with loving your neighbor. And so you're, then Jesus will say in Matthew 22, on these two commandments, loving God, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, depend all the law and the prophets. Well, what do we do with that? If you're a Christian, you want to love God. You want to love your neighbor. But who defines love? What does loving my neighbor look like? What does it look like to actually apply that commandment? God's law. God's law reveals to us what loving your neighbor looks like. The entire Old Testament is built upon the two laws of loving God, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Now secondly, Jesus does not allow you to neglect certain commandments and to obey others. You can't just say, you know, that stuff, what God's law says about these topics is really not that relevant because I'm going to choose what he says over here. Well, listen to Jesus. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Well, that means every single commandment, every single statute, no matter how big or small we may think it is, is still relevant because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment thereof. The warning he attaches for one who violates this is that they will, quote, be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is twofold. There is the present kingdom of Christ. We currently live in what the Puritans would call the kingdom of grace, as well as the eternal kingdom and the life to come, the kingdom of glory. You see, you will first be called least in the kingdom of grace as God's true saints will not support those who neglect his word or neglect his law. Though you may see those antinomian teachers promoted, though you may see them with huge platforms and money and all these different things, rest assured it is not the kingdom of grace they are esteemed in, but rather the empire of demons. It is sometimes God's judgment to allow wicked men to be esteemed by their peers, thus enslaving them even further in their depravity. But those who relax even the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same will also be called least in that eternal kingdom of glory, which could mean one of two things, and I will just present both options to you. 
One, it would mean that this person really is a, a true Christian, though misguided, and it would communicate the loss of rewards in eternity. Or, perhaps this is even the more likely interpretation, that what Christ is talking about is someone's neglect of his law, someone's neglect of his word, would reveal that they are not Christians at all, and thus shall not enter the kingdom at all. Well, verse 19 then ends when Jesus switches to the positive and promises blessing in the kingdom to one who does them and teaches them, referring to the law. And this promise, again, is both for that the present kingdom of grace where we are right now and the future kingdom of glory. You see, though their ministries may be small and you may never see them on national conference stages, you may never see them on the front page of a Christian's, Christian bookstore's bestseller list, God's true ministers and also God's true saints, those who honor his law, both in their personal conduct and teaching, will be revered by his true saints here on earth. I'm reminded of a quote which says, preach the truth even if only one person supports you. And in the kingdom of glory which is to come, those who have paid honor to God's holy law will have their reward. Now, so far, everything I said, I imagine, sounded very very plain, very, very simple to your ears. It's like, okay, Jesus says, I'm not come to abolish the law. He says it's not going to pass away until all is accomplished. And then in verse 19, he says that there's punishment for breaking the law, there's blessing for keeping the law. And, and so, you know, verses 17 through 19 of the fifth chapter of Matthew all neatly come together to provide us with an airtight case that God's law, even the Old Testament law, i.e. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, continue to have an abiding relevance for the new covenant church and that it is necessary to see how the law applies to us in the 21st century. All that's rather obvious, given Jesus' words here, and I really don't think any faithful Christian could disagree. Now here's where it gets tricky. Well, How? How do we actually apply that? How do we actually live that out? I mean, doesn't the Apostle Paul say that we are not under the law, but we're under grace? And so if God's law continues to have a relevance for us living in the 21st century, how do we do it? How do we actually open up Leviticus and Deuteronomy and understand how that applies to me right now? You see, we have to recognize and deal with the fact that the solution is not so simple as to take Leviticus and Deuteronomy, open them up, and then thoughtlessly obey the strict and literal or surface level interpretation of everything we read. Now, the objection would come to that statement, but, but why not, Logan? I mean, you're always telling us that the Bible is the Word of God. You've spent the last 20 minutes telling us how the Old Testament is, is powerful and it's still relevant and all these different things. But now you're saying that we don't just strictly follow it. And my response to that would be, yes, because to do so would be blasphemy. Think about it. It would actually be breaking God's law for us to follow it in such a thoughtless manner. Here's why. If you listen to our last study, you will remember that we said Jesus fulfilled the law, and of course, in his actively obeying the law, but also by, you know, by obeying all of God's commandments, but also Jesus passively endures the punishments that God's law requires. 
Both of these things come together so that when Christ, as the high priest, comes to make atonement for our sins, he can offer up a perfect, he can offer up a blameless sacrifice. And what that does is it fulfills the priestly office of the Old Testament and the animal sacrifices that we read about. Because of the fact that Christ is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he has offered up a perfect sacrifice once and for all, if we were to repeat those Old Testament animal sacrifices, which were trying to point us to Christ, that would be blasphemous. Because what that would communicate is that we did not actually believe that Christ's atonement was sufficient to save us. We would be saying that, no, we need to make another sacrifice. And so, how then are those sacrifices relevant? How are the animal sacrifices relevant for us today? Well, this may surprise you, but I would, along with many, uh, such as Calvin, say that those ceremonial sacrifices are more meaningful are more meaningful to us now than they were to the Jews back in Moses' day. And so those laws are still, in a sense, relevant to us, and we still obey them, though we don't obey them in the same way. You see, the Old Covenant Jews obeyed those animal sacrifices by having a priest of the line of Aaron and actually killing the animal and offering it up. But we obey those sacrifices those laws in a greater sense. Why? Because we read those laws in order to trust in the perfect atonement which Christ provided that those laws were pointing to. You see, those, those laws about animal sacrifices were about my Savior. Were about my Savior. And when I look at them, I understand that the mystery of Jesus Christ is being opened up before my very eyes and was unfolding in God's redemptive plan throughout history. Therefore, they take on a very, very special, very, very meaningful relevance for the Christian. Now, at this point, and I'm I'm going to try to break this down as as simply as possible for all of us to understand because I, I, I do think this is important for us to deal with it will be helpful for me to remind us of what is commonly called the threefold division of the law. Now, what is the threefold division of the law? The threefold division of the law is simply the recognition that the law of Moses can be divided up into three basic categories, namely moral, ceremonial, and judicial. Now, the Bible itself does not neatly and easily lay these categories out for us. These are categories that Christian theologians have recognized throughout the ages. And I realize this may may be sounding like a lot of information, may sound like I'm just lecturing, but here's the thing. When you are trying to share your faith in public, uh, when you are trying to deal with objections to Christianity, you know, we, we, I'll just bring it up again because we were talking about the whole homosexuality thing earlier. What is the number one response that you are likely to hear if you quote Leviticus 18 or 20 in that conversation? Okay, well, do your clothes have mixed fibers? Do you eat pork? Do you eat shellfish? Now, how many of you just right now would feel comfortable answering that objection 
That's why it's important that we talk about, that, talk about this. And so the threefold division, again, moral, ceremonial, judicial. The moral law refers to unchanging principles of righteousness that apply to all mankind. Think the thou shalt nots, the, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. These are the laws that are summed up in the Ten Commandments. And, you know, what's worthy of mentioning is the fact that the Ten Commandments were the only laws that God wrote with his own finger. Uh, the rest of the laws were written by Moses on scrolls, but the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God on uh, tablets of stone. And, and, you know, when you read the account of the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it is clear that these have a special preeminence compared to the rest of the laws of the Old Testament. Uh, these unchanging moral laws, according to Romans chapter 2, are written on the conscience of every human being, including Adam. I was having a, it's interesting, I was having a conversation with my uncle, actually, who was also my boss, and we were talking about the Ten Commandments or, or this, that type of stuff, and he, like, he said to me, but Logan, ain't that stuff just kind of obvious? Like, don't we just all know, like, instinctively that we shouldn't murder, that we shouldn't do these things? And I said, well, yeah, because the Bible says that those laws are written on their hearts, on our hearts. And he's like, so I'm, I'm right about that? And I, I, I said, yes, you are right. It's, that's a, a biblical teaching right there. Now, the New Testament enforces these commandments, as we will see throughout chapter 5, with just as much rigor as the Old Testament does. Now, that's, that's the moral law. Those are unchanging principles of righteousness. Now, the ceremonial law refers to the external ordinances of worship that pointed to Christ. We were talking about the animal sacrifices earlier. That would follow, fall under the ceremonial category. Animal sacrifices, the dietary restrictions, uh, circumcision, things of those nature those things had a religious or theological significance in pointing the Old Testament Jews to Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Now, obviously, as we mentioned, in regards to animal sacrifices, it would be blasphemous for us to repeat them. But then, you know, think about, you know, the dietary rules, you know, abstaining from pork, abstaining from selfish, etc. Well, you read your New Testament, and the New Testament clearly identifies those dietary restrictions as not being binding on Christians. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. And we have that great scene in Acts chapter 10 where Peter sees the vision of a sheet unfolding, and there is a multiplicity of animals on there, and the Lord says to him, rise, kill, eat. Now, if you're reading the book of Acts, what is the very next thing that happens? Peter meets with Cornelius, a Gentile, and God uses Peter to share the gospel with this Gentile. And now, this non-Jew is grafted into spiritual Israel, God's kingdom. And so you see, that is what those laws about not eating pork were signifying us, God's covenant people in the Old Testament were to be separate from the, the rest of the world. It was one race, one ethnicity, one nation. When Christ comes, he 
holds forth his scepter from Zion, and his kingdom spreads to the end of the earth. Therefore, all foods have been made clean. You can eat ham and not feel guilty about it as a Christian. Now, does that mean that those laws are no longer relevant to us? In the sense of we don't obey them strictly, as I said, but there's still a relevance there. What were those laws about? God's people being holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Being separate, distinct from the world. That applies to Christians too, okay? So, so, you, so you kind of are, are starting to hopefully see how some of this actually uh, works. So we look at those laws, and, and we, what we are seeing there is we are seeing spiritual truths uh, for us. Though the, you know, actually strictly following them, though that has passed away, their spiritual significance is eternal. John Calvin writes, God enjoins ceremonies that their outward use might be temporal, their meaning eternal. Uh, For an example of how this can be applied, you can listen to my last sermon, and I hope that we did a good job of that. Uh, The third category, we've talked about the moral law, the moral law, unchanging principles of righteousness. We've just discussed the ceremonial law, those external ordinances of worship that had spiritual significance, and the spiritual significance is still abiding today. The third category is what is called the judicial law. Now, the judicial law refers to the directions that ancient Israel had in regards to criminal and civil justice in the nation of Israel. Laws about how Israelites were to conduct business with one another and such things would fall under this category. Now, the New Testament applies these laws in a way that sadly, I think, is very much underappreciated in our day. So, you know, given the fact that when these laws were given, about 3,000 or so years ago, they were given to a specific nation of covenant people, it would be almost absurd. It would, I mean, it would be impossible, really, to think that we could just simply carry those laws over and strictly enforce them in the same way. But what the New Testament does, which I think is so powerful for us to learn, what the New Testament authors do is they will look at these judicial laws and from there derive or, or get certain principles and make application based upon the principles derived from these judicial laws. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 19, we read that in the case of a trial, uh, a single witness would not suffice in bringing a charge against someone, but only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. By the way, that idea right there, uh, due process, was what was in the minds of our founding fathers when they designed the judicial system in our nation. Now, the Christian church is obviously not a you know, secular nation in the same way that Israel was. But in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus appeals to this law and uses it to establish the fact that in cases of church discipline, charges cannot be established on the case of one witness only. But you know the verse. You shall take two or three witnesses with you, for where two or three are gathered 
in my name, there I am with them. In a similar sense, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says that you shall not muzzle an ox when it, when it is treading out the grain. You, you not, don't put something over the animal so that as it is doing this agricultural work, work it cannot eat uh, some of the crop as it is going. Do not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes this law in two of his letters. And he makes the application from this principle that ministers of the gospel deserve financial compensation for their labor. And so we see that in the New Covenant, we do not strictly adhere to these laws in that sense, but we recognize that they are God-given and as such are an incredible source of wisdom that we can use to make application for our everyday lives my personal dealings with another, when John has me do a job with him, he, he feeds me, he, he pays me, he doesn't muzzle the ox as it's treading out the grain. There's a very easy and, and understandable way in which we can apply these things. Now, where this concept of the threefold division gets tricky is when you have laws that seem like they could belong in more than one category. Certainly there is a sense in which every law has a moral element to it since all the laws were given by God and the necessity of obeying God is an eternally unchanging uh, principle. We could look at the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath, and we recognize that there were definitely aspects of the Sabbath that were ceremonial that we are not under in the, the same way, while at the same time the idea of the Sabbath is something that is rooted in God's creating the earth in six days, resting on the seventh. It's included in these Ten Commandments, which are uh, e- eternal. And so that is why the Christian church has historically observed what we call the Lord's Day uh, on Sunday as a sort of Christian application of the Sabbath law. Now, there are also, are, of course, you know, many of the judicial laws which are given, you know, operate based upon principles that the moral law teaches elsewhere. And so our responsibility as people who want to be followers of Christ, who want to be obedient to Christ in our everyday lives, and want to speak Christian truth and Christian righteousness to our society, you know, we need to study these things appropriately. We, need, we can't just have a, you know, we can't just skim through a chapter in Leviticus and then just make all sorts of rules based upon that. We have to be careful and diligent in our study. As Beaky and Smalley write, we must interpret each text in the law with sensitivity to its content, context, and culmination in the New Testament. Beloved, the law of God is a beautiful thing. The law of God is a wonderful thing. It is an absolute testament to the mercy, the love, and the condescension of our great God that the Torah, which is the law, exists. I mean, God did not have to give it to us. He didn't have to. He did not owe it to us. Yet He chose to condescend Himself in this way that blessing might come to us. The law of God understood properly is a reflection of God's holy nature. And when we are studying God's word and God's law, we are studying who God is. I hope that these words from the psalm would resonate with you. I'm going to read from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. 
Psalmist writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. When is the last time any of you were that excited about the book of Leviticus? And yet, listen to the words of the psalmist here in this place. Now, to help us understand more fully how it is that we apply God's law to our lives, we should talk about the fact that not only does the law have a threefold division, but there is what we call the three uses of the law. Now, what are the three uses of the law? Well, the three uses of the law is this concept that goes back to the Reformation. It is articulated by by Calvin and others of his day. And this is basically the three main ways in which God's law can be applied in our day. The first use of the law is to restrain sinners and to restrain unrighteousness. I mean, you can't forget the fact that this is God's law, like in the sense of legislation. Uh, Now, as already mentioned, we recognize it was given in a specific time period, in a specific context, and careful study is necessary when seeking to apply these things. But nevertheless, the first use of the law would be to use it in society as a means to restrain man's sin. Now, as Paul tells us so strongly in the book of Galatians, salvation and justification will never come by the law alone. It is grace that saves sinners. But that does not mean that the law is not to be used as a way of restraining the evil in this world. Let us not forget that the government, as much as we love it, uh, according to Romans chapter 13, is a servant of God, which bears the sword to exercise God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And yes, that passage is about capital punishment. Now, if the government is a servant of God, well, that means that the government needs to be obedient to God. And Psalm chapter 2, or not chapter, but Psalm 2 tells the kings and the rulers of this earth to serve the Lord with fear and, quote, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Governments, politicians, those who are in authority, have a responsibility to be obedient to God in those positions. That is why the government can be called a servant of God because when the government is doing its job, It is exercising the will of God in terms of righteousness in this world. So you ask the question, how does a governor govern? According to what standard does the governor govern? Well, you you think it'd be obvious that if you're a Christian, it's God's word. It's, It's God's law. The law of God serves as a standard by which governors should govern. This is a concept which is commonly referred to as theonomy. Theonomy just means God's law. Now, theonomy is a very controversial thing. A lot of people don't like it. 
I, I do. Uh, I would describe myself as a general equity theonomist, which means I believe that we should look to the Old Testament law, search out the principles that are taught there, and seek to make application in our government and in our society based upon not our own opinions, not our own opinions, but God's word. For the life of me, I don't see how Christians who believe the word of God is the word of God would want it any other way. And so if the government was ordained by God to restrain the evil in this world, by what standard do we determine what's good or evil? By what standard should they do so? Well, the standard is God's word, God's law. People err very greatly when they seek to separate their religion from their politics. This is a grave mistake. If Jesus Christ is going to be Lord of my life, if I'm going to be a follower of Christ in all that I do, that includes my politics as well. Uh, if, if you want to hear more about you know, seeking to speak Christian truth to the outside world, I'd recommend you listen to my sermon on salt and light earlier in the series. For now, I just admonish us that God's standard ought to be our standard. And I would like to remind our governing authorities who want to use the power of legislation to violate God's word and to murder the innocent and to promote unrighteousness, they have a responsibility to kiss the son, to fear God, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Jesus promises judgment to the one who relaxes even the least of these commandments. Now, the second use of the law is called the evangelical use. That means to convict sinners. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is something that we touched on in our last sermon, but essentially what the law of God does in this regard is it shows you, without a doubt, according to a written, fixed standard, that you are indeed a sinner. In the context of Romans chapter 3, what's going on? Well, you have the masterful exposition of the Apostle Paul where he addresses the, 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 the fallen nature of the Gentiles. Well, then the Jews are over there boasting, saying, look, Look at how sinful sinful they are. And then Paul says, you think that you're any better just because you have God's law? Yeah, you have God's law, but you violate God's law. Therefore, both Jew, Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the way that he can prove that, the way that he can back up his claim is by pointing to God's law and saying, look, every mouth is stopped. Every one, if they are understanding themselves properly, when they look at God's law, knows, and this includes myself, we know that we have violated it. We know that we have broken God's law. We've violated His standards. We've made a mockery of what He says is good. He explains in Romans 3, there's none who is righteous. There is none who does good. There's absolutely no one who seeks after God. You see, the Jews pointed to the Gentiles and said, look, they're sinners. 
yet they believed that they were righteous. God's law puts a stop to that. God's law puts a stop to such arrogant boasting. Far too many people alive today believe themselves to be good people. There's a problem with that. The Bible says there are no good people. God's law puts a stop to such ridiculous nonsense. You are not good. In fact, you are less than good. You are evil. Your sin is slimy. It is disgusting. It is gross. It is wicked. It is treacherous. The Lord God who is holy abhors and detests your sin. That is what God's law shows us. And if you want to see this expounded more masterfully, read Matthew chapter 5. Jesus does a better job explaining this than I ever could. Lord willing, I, I will be covering these sections in my next few sermons, but just, just read it. Just, just, I mean, look at Jesus when he is teaching that it is not just murder that is liable to the judgment, but everyone who is angry with their brother is liable to the judgment. When he teaches, it is not just adultery that is forbidden, but everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. This, then, is the second use of the law, that the law would show you your sin. And in desperation, it would show you your need for a Savior. It would show you your need for a Savior. My friends, this is the good news. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And though we sin greatly, Christ's salvation is even stronger than our sin. He died as the great high priest, the sin bearer for all who shall call upon his name. And this day I promise that you, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you will find forgiveness in total for all of your sins. You will have life, you will have blessing, you will have renewal. For this is what God's Word promises us. Jesus Christ is a perfect and powerful Savior. Now many of you are Christians already, and for that, the angels in heaven rejoice. But the question then comes, if Christ has forgiven our sins, how then shall we live? Well, the standard, once again, is God's Word. It is God's law. And so this is the third use of the law, which once convicted us of our sin, now the law is what we strive to be obedient to. Now, do we obey it perfectly? No, not, not at all. But nevertheless, that is the standard we go by. The Puritan Samuel Bolton writes, the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. This is the very thing communicated in Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Those verses are, are quoted so often and are, and are memorized when we, when we are young and we are in, you know, when I was young, it was vacation Bible school. But what many don't recognize is the fact that the psalmist is talking specifically about the law of God. He would have primarily been thinking about Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which are unfortunately probably the, the words of God that we most infrequently store up in our hearts, which we most infrequently use as a lamp to light our path and to show, light our path and to show us how we should walk. Once again, as I quoted Beaky and Smalley early, we must interpret each text in the law 
with sensitivity in regards to its content, context, and culmination in the New Testament. What does that mean? That means careful, diligent, faithful Bible study. But my point is that once the work is proper, once you properly understand, okay, is this law over here, is this, is this a moral law, is this ceremonial, how does this apply in the 21st century? Once the, the work of interpretation is done, once you know what God's Word says, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you should look at that and say, dear God, give me the grace to live this out. Dear God, would that I would be conformed to your will. Dear God, would that I would be conformed to the image of your Son. Let us remember how seriously we need to take this. You know, Jesus promised, you know, I understand that when I'm talking about some of the stuff we've talked about tonight, it sounds like just, wow, that's a lot of, lot of information. And how, I mean, does that, that really matter? Does it really matter that I understand the threefold division and the three uses and all these different things? Well, listen, Jesus promises curse to the one who neglects the least of his commandments. And he promises blessing to the one who keeps them. Jesus also said, to whom much is given, much will be required. My friends, if you are in the possession of a complete Bible, God is going to hold all of us accountable for that. You know, what did Jesus say to the disciples after his resurrection? Oh, foolish hearts. Foolish ones, slow to believe all that the law and the prophets had written. He, Jesus held them accountable for the fact that they had God's law, they had God's word, and they did not interpret it correctly. How much more are you and I going to be held accountable where we have Bible apps and Bible softwares and, and, and you can go to Walmart and get a Bible for $5? You think God is going to hold us accountable to that? I, I, I think He will. And so because of this, may us seek diligently to want to know God's Word, to want to live in God's Word, to want to internalize God's Word, to truly store up His Word in our hearts that we may not sin against Him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. My friends, the Spirit of Christ is the one who has given us all the, the, the first book of Moses to the last book of Revelation, all is for us. In closing... I want to give you this encouragement. With all this talk about the law and obedience and obeying God's commandments and these different things, which are absolutely vital, I, I do need to say this. Um, never forget, as good as the law is, as important as it is for all of us to want to be obedient to God, never forget that the intention of the law was never to justify us. That is, never to save us. God gave us the law to be our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came. You see, the law will convict you of your sin, and, and, and I hope it does. I really do. The law will convict you of your sin, and the law will show you how to live righteously, but the law will never free you from your sin and give you the grace that you need to live righteously. My friends, that was not God's intention. This grace comes only through God-given faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Not your obedience, not your good works. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who offers himself.
for all who would come to him on the cross. You need Jesus. You need Je- Jesus is your only hope. If you, don't, if you do not know Christ, you must call out. The, you, you, you need him now. You need him now. It is his saving and cleansing power alone which removes us from the curse of the law. Because that, that, that is a reality. That's what those sacrifices are supposed to tell us. There's the, the, they're supposed to tell us that when you break God's law, it requires your blood. That's why there, were, there was a priesthood. What you need to understand is we have an even greater priesthood. We have a priest after the order of Melchizedek. His name is Jesus Christ. He lives forever to make intercession for all those who would draw nigh unto God through him. What does he ask? Faith. He does not ask you to do a certain thing. He does not ask you to say a certain thing. He asks of you to believe in him and to trust him. That's why he can say, what's the greatest commandment? Love me. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. All the stuff about obeying God's law in our personal lives and in society, that will come. But my friends, never forget the gospel is about faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And no one has ever believed in Jesus Christ who did not find him to be a perfect and complete Savior. He is a good shepherd. He will lose none of his sheep, for he is powerful. Let us pray. Father God, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word tonight. God, I just pray that we were faithful to you. I pray that we honored you in what we did. God, show us the power of your word. Let us love your word. Let your word be as sweet to us as, as, as honey falling off the honeycomb. God, let us be passionate about you. Let us be passionate about your law. And let us strive to be holy as you are holy. Let us strive to be obedient. But dear God, never, ever allow us to fall into the error of thinking that it is our obedience to your law which saves us. God, it can never be. It could never be. For the law tells me that I cannot do that. The law tells me that I need a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, your son, has so graciously offered himself. No one takes his life from him, but he gives it of his own accord. And he promises that all who shall call upon his name will be saved. Oh, dear God, let us treasure these things, and I pray that your spirit would apply this truth to a great number of people. For you've promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars, as numberless as the sands of the sea. Oh, dear God, the promise is to give your son the nations, and might not some of us tonight be included therein. It is in his name we pray. Amen.